Welcome to the Zetamar Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Rain. The podcast is released every Saturday and features news and analysis from both the Zetamar team and special guests. Sign up to our newsletter at zetamarnews.substack.com or through our main website, zetamar.com, to receive the podcast by email. Or you can find us on podcast apps and Spotify, which is perhaps the easiest way of subscribing to the show and making sure you don't miss an episode. Today we've got two excellent interviews to share with you featuring two incredible guests. The first is with the author of a new book looking into the use of local militia in Mozambique's civil war with Renamo and drawing out lessons for the current conflict in Cabo Delgado. The second with journalist and veteran Mozambique election watcher Joe Hanlon on his hopes and fears for the next electoral cycle. But first, a look at the week's news with Tom Bowker. On Monday, Zetamar published a detailed piece by our consultant editor, Fernando Lima, looking into the issues determining when the Mozambique LNG project, operated by Total Energies, is going to start. We then ran a scoop on Tuesday that random troops have been deployed to Makomia, outside of the two districts of immediate importance to the gas projects. Joining us now is Fernando Lima, who is a regular guest on this podcast, to discuss his piece in the light of recent developments, before also turning to two other events in Mozambique this week the visit of Malawian President Lazarus Chakwera, and the announcement of a list of companies competing to build the massive Mpandunkua Dam project. Um, good morning, Fernando. So you wrote this piece um, for the Cabo Ligado Monthly about um, how Total is viewing the security issues and its own imperatives to get the gas project underway. Um, and then we had news of um, a further random deployment to, to Makamea. How do those two things uh, play into each other and have things developed since, even since you wrote that piece at the end of last week? Uh, yes. Uh, for example, uh, the Prime Minister uh, and the Minister of for Mineral Resources uh, uh, speaking in Parliament this week just confirm what we have said at the beginning uh, of the week, uh, namely that uh, without putting a date on, but just confirming that the the project, the total project will resume soon. And as well, we have a spokesperson for ExxonMobil saying as soon as total waives the force majeure status, they will go for the investment final decision. Uh, what are the relation between uh, these announcements and the Rwandan move to Makumiya? I think both government and Total are discussing the concept uh, of uh, uh, improved security in Cap Delgado. And in order to address that, you cannot just have a security situation being improved in Palma and uh, Musimo de Praia, but also in more critical areas like uh, Makumia and uh, and Nangad, meaning you have uh, to, you need to have a more enlarged uh, security umbrella in order for total restart their uh, their operations, and uh, that's why, in my view, Rwanda moved down moved down to Makumia, not to be permanent as. Uh, Ronald Rivanga, the spokesperson for RDF, have emphasized to uh, Zitamar this week, but to, to give an help to the South African contingent uh, that is stationed uh, in the Makumia area. And by the way, uh, South African contingent uh, got reinforcements both in uh, soldiers and materials. So, the, and as Zitamar have said uh, a few weeks ago that there was they were planning this uh, military offensive in uh, in Makumia in order to uh, enforce peace and security in this particular area that have known uh, some instability uh, in the last couple of months despite the presence of uh, the, SADEC, the SADEC contingent there, namely the uh, South African battalion. Yeah. 
We still don't have any um, concrete proof, do we, that uh, France or Total are paying for the Rwandan contingent, but they're clearly very important to um, to how the war is going. And this does look um, a bit like they are trying to expand the secure area around sort of splaying out from the area of the of the gas project. I just wanted to pull you well, up on one thing. I think the, the Exxon statement was maybe not as strong as you had it. I don't think they promised to take FID as soon as force majeure was lifted. I think they, they said we're going to wait for force majeure to be lifted and then we'll start thinking about, start working towards FID. Eventually, eventually. Yeah. I think step-by-step, uh, uh, step, bit by bit, we are uh, kind of getting a better understanding on the cooperation between uh, Total, France, uh, Rwanda, and, uh, and Mozambique. And uh, you'll see, uh, we are seeing the role of Rwanda being uh, expanded. You are uh, seeing uh, uh, security facilities being built in uh, the Afungi uh, area, uh, also in getting more space for uh, Rwanda to operate in uh, in a more permanent basis. And this will, you will see very soon if this will be along with the uh, official RDF uh, force or through uh, a Rwandese security private uh, company. Yeah, and um, President Nusi's regional diplomatic offensive continues. Uh, it's been announced this week a rather intriguing uh, trip to Uganda in the coming days. Um, but this week he hosted um, President Lazarus Chakwera from Malawi, which um, does seem to be an increasingly important relationship that, that both men are cultivating. Yeah, uh, well, uh, Uganda uh, have helped Mozambique uh, in a lot of uh, different connections uh, of uh, Mr. Nussi in uh, Eastern, uh, Eastern Africa. Mozambique has uh, a past of not so good relations in Eastern Africa due to the fact, for example, that uh, Kenya uh, had received a lot of Relimo dissidents. During the during the armed uh, struggle, but at this point, for example, uh, the relation with Kenya is a very good relation. At one point, uh, and prior to the involvement of Rwanda in Mozambique, President Nusi uh, had uh, extended an invitation to Kenya to uh, intervene in Cap Delgado, having in mind that both Uganda and Kenya have some experience in this time of uh, insurgency, namely the ideological aspects of the insurgency. In relation to Malawi, there are two uh, important aspects I think it should be emphasized. Um, one is that Malawi, along with Botswana, had played a very uh, important role in supporting Mozambique in SADC and uh, the Mozambican arguments within SADC uh, related to the intervention in, uh, in, uh, in Cap Delgado. Uh, the second aspect is there is also a very negative uh, relationship between uh, Mozambique and Malawi, a relationship that on the Mozambican side have been always characterized uh, with a lot of arrogance and a lot of uh, uh, imposing driven uh, attitude uh, towards Malawi, namely in the participation of Malawi in the transport uh, corridors on uh, joint ventures, on the use or non-use of Shire and the Zambezi River as a way of, uh, of transport. So uh, according to what we have seen uh, in recent months, Nusi is trying to build up a real relationship, a commercial, economic relationship with Malawi. And there are two concrete projects, which are not enormous projects, but are uh, quite big projects, namely the, a new connection, a new rail connection in southern Malawi by rail and uh, coming from, uh, from Beta Port. Uh, plus an electrical uh, uh, connection from Kaurabasa 
to uh, central uh, Malawi and also the, the potential for Malawi to uh, add a better use of the port of uh, Nakala. As you know, there is a, a new railway line built by Vale from Nakala to Moatis that enters, uh, enters Malawi. But due to traffic constraints, namely that the, due to the fact that most of the line have been used by coal coming from Moatis, uh, general cargo and as a secondary uh, place in this traffic along this line. Uh, yeah. there, are new, uh, there are new facts. There are new facts on uh, on this uh, on the use of Nakala port. The port is being expanded, so it's more open to more uh, vessel uh, traffic plus more uh, space for uh, container uh, container traffic and this really uh, offers new possibilities for Malawi cargo. But, but, and this but is a strong uh, but and if Mozambican authorities need to improve uh, the cargo handling, the bu bureaucracy at the port and the railway line, which Malawi uh, argues uh, the, 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 the costs are too high and uh, the inefficiency of Mozambican ports and uh, the tariffs are uh, encouraging Malawi to seek alternative routes, namely the port of Dar es Salaam and still the southern route, which is uh, related to the ports of South Africa, which Malawi continued to use. Yeah, and it's, I mean, there are a couple of issues still to be worked out, at least in my mind. What, what's happening with the, um, that Nikala rail line now that Vale are selling it? Um, are they really selling that to Jindal? Are Jindal going to operate it in the way Vale have done? Or is it, is it going to go back to Mozambique CFM? Um, I also think it's going to be really interesting, coming back to what we were talking about just now, that the, um, if, if Uganda is going to be an important partner, um, that country's very complicated relationship with, with Rwanda is going to be um, something interesting to look in in the future. But I did want to just come briefly uh, before we finish, um, and I think we can segue in here from the uh, electricity interconnector into Malawi. Um, Mozambique wants to build another huge dam on Mozambique, the Mpandungkua, and they have a new list of consortia wanting to, who have submitted pre-qualification applications this week. Um, in amongst them, there's Total, which seems to be uh, bidding for everything energy-related in Mozambique at the moment. Um, but a couple other consortia uh, that include the Zimbabwean and the Zambian state electricity um, companies. So I wondered what you thought of that and what um, what chances those, those, those guys might have bidding against Total and against Chinese consortia. In total, there are uh, 15 15. Uh, companies in, involved in uh, in this tender and of course uh, not of course but according to uh, Mozambican authorities and there is an office uh, special uh, specially created for the, this uh, this project the idea is to involve everybody including the region uh, the region as potential of takers and not just see South Africa as the only off-taker of energy being produced uh, by a new dam in um, Pandankua. That's the, that's the vision. And that's why you see, uh, I would say, minor, uh, minor partners related to Zimbabwe and uh, Zambia also uh, involved in this, uh, in this process. So, uh, do not forget, and uh, this is partly to answer the issue of uh, total uh, energies, uh, this uh, office has uh, 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 a huge and powerful consultant working, uh, working uh, with the, the Mozambican government in order to assure that the, the best partnership uh, should be assured in the in the project. So basically, uh, at this point, uh, Mozambique is selecting the the developers, not the builders of the dam. And uh, there will be uh, an answer on uh, those uh, 
those selections by June and by uh, by the end of the year, I would say November, the the consortium or the companies uh, selected in um, in June will be invited to present their plans in in order to address uh, the different aspects of this project, namely the the, the building, the the financing, uh, uh, all sorts of uh, things related to the uh, to the project. Wonderful. Thank you, Fernando. That is all and even more than we've got time for this morning, but we're going to put it on the podcast and get it out today, Saturday, 23rd of April. Thanks ever so much uh, for joining us. On Wednesday, editor of Zetamon News Tom Bowker spoke with Professor Corinna Yench from Leiden University. She's just published a new book, Violent Resistance, Militia Formation and Civil War in Mozambique, which looks at the formation of militias during Mozambique's civil war. They discussed her book, as well as what lessons her work could hold in understanding the current crisis in Cabo Delgado. So thank you, Corinna, for coming on the Zitama podcast, first of all. Well, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I, I will get into some questions about how um, your research can be relevant to the current situation in Cabo Delgado. But I wanted to start by asking you to just give us a quick outline of this really fascinating story that um, many people who even know quite a bit about Mozambique may not know very well this story of the Naparama. So what's, what's the story there and um, why did it grab you as a, a topic for research? Yes, so um, so this is a story of the civil war that took place between 1976 and 1992. And um, the group that I studied emerged in the late 1980s in Zambezia province, but there were also units of this group in uh, Nampula. And there was a the main leader of this group, this militia, which was called the Naparama, was Manuel Antonio, and he was a traditional healer who claimed to have received a mission from God to liberate the Mozambican people from the sufferings of the war. And as we know, of course, this this war, the civil war, was specifically a war about the people. It was focused on um, forced relocation of people. There was also a lot of violence against civilians in that war. And uh, so this traditional healer, this Manuel Antonio, had a lot of success in convincing people to take a medicine that he prepared that was supposedly making them immune to bullets. And he first convinced bus passengers that were traveling from one city to another to take this medicine. And then he started to form local units, local groups to patrol villages, to patrol resettlement areas and inform the local administration and the local population of any imminent attacks or any other dangers um, that they would see. So these groups formed all across Zambezia, spread uh, uh, across many districts in Zambezia, and then also into Nampula. There was actually a different traditional healer who led the most of these groups in Nampula province, and they were active with approval of the local government, with the approval of the local administration, and were really effective in um, in the in the war against Renamo, uh, at least initially, um, because the the entire war, the entire civil war, had uh, kind of a spiritual dimension to it. Renamo had its own spiritual forms of. Uh, protection. And so Renamo combatants were very afraid of Naparama, at least initially. And so this militia kind of turned the tide in a certain way uh, in the war in Zambezia uh, province until Renamo then kind of prepared reprisal attacks against the civilians that were involved in this militia and also formed its own militia unit that had its own traditional healer and its own medicine that also supposedly made combatants immune to bullets. So there was a certain dynamic that then ended the successful phase of this militia. The Manuel Antonio was killed, presumably by Renamo combatants in battle. And, uh, and then the war also ended. So, um, so the lifespan of that militia was pretty short. 
Okay. How how long how long was that in total? Then, from do you date it from when it started to to when he died? Um, that was that was three and a half to four years, probably. Okay. Right. The exact date is a little bit uh, difficult to to ascertain in a in the aftermath. I think it raises all sorts of really interesting questions about. Yeah, like you say, spirituality, or I guess I was going to call it magic, or you know, ma magical beliefs, and but maybe that's um, maybe spirituality is the right way of thinking about it. And I wonder whether, uh, to what extent, those issues are also relevant now in the Cabo Delgado conflict, which I suppose has a more overtly religious aspect to it, uh, which is also contested. But also, I mean, I at least have anecdotally heard of members of the Mozambican military believing that the insurgents in Cabo Delgado are immune to bullets and things. How much are you seeing that stuff echoed in, in the current conflict going on in Cabo Delgado? Yes, so um, so this kind of this belief that certain combat combatants are immune to bullets, that's pretty pervasive across not only Mozambique, but also Southern Africa. It's very pervasive in, in Western Africa. What was special to the Naparama was that um, that this there was a belief in a medicine that that also at the same time created a group. So it wasn't just individual protection um, that uh, that individual combatants and soldiers would go to traditional healers and and seek medicine for their protection. That also happened. What was new about the Naparama was that they. Um, that this traditional healer basically thought of a medicine that would also at the same time create a group. So it was a collective undertaking of initiating people, vaccinating people, and then making them members um, of a militia, militia. So there was there was a collective um, effort, a collective dimension to this. And that I haven't seen yet uh, in the Cabo Delgado conflict. So uh, for now, I believe that, um, yes, there, there are kind of beliefs that the, the enemy combatants are immune to bullets um, just because of the also difficulty of fighting them. I also uh, think that individual combatants, individual soldiers probably seek support from traditional healers to be more supported and more protected in battle. But for now, I think this is a very um, individual undertaking and I haven't seen any evidence of kind of collectively recruiting and initiating an entire group as part of um, yeah, such a more, more traditional militia, so to yeah. say. Another really interesting aspect that came out in the, um, at the launch event last week was the question of how the government viewed the Naparama and whether they co-opted them, whether they worked with them or whether they saw them as a threat. So could you answer that, uh, talk a little bit about that and maybe how that differs or is similar to the situation in Cabo Delgado where um, we are seeing some official acceptance of the role of militias, I think. Yes, so during the civil war, the main leader of the militia, Manuel Antonio, Antonio was very careful in talking to local administrative leaders and local, the local military and seeking approval for his activities in certain villages and in certain districts. And this was important because Frelimo, the government and the military both were very suspicious of any additional violent activity of any additional armed group emerging, which of course would have made the civil war much more difficult to fight. And uh, so it was very important to get in touch with local um, administrative leaders and seek approval. And the local administration was not always very welcoming of this idea to form a militia and to have an additional number of armed men in the village. But at some point, they really sought to create these groups because they saw the effectiveness of these groups in bringing about security for civilians and protecting civilians, and then actively kind of called Manuel and Antonio to their village to form a new unit. So local administrative leaders really wanted this militia to be active in their districts, in many of them. And in some districts, this militia then even collaborated with the army, uh, went on joint missions, and uh, sometimes even uh, replaced the army because the local army contingent wasn't very effective and um, didn't really have the trust of the local population. So there were different forms of tolerance and collaboration during the civil war between the Naparama militia and the local administration and local uh, military. 
the story is a little bit different now because there were various initiatives in, in different districts that asked the government for approval of forming a militia, also for receiving weapons and uniforms. And also this time the government was hesitant at first. Uh, they didn't necessarily want to yeah, have to deal with more armed men uh, in this region, but then um, approved more and more of this idea of uh, arming the veterans of the independence war, of giving them uniforms and of basically assigning them uh, tasks within this war, within this counterinsurgency effort against the uh, insurgents. And there's still some hesitancy in terms of how much support the government is willing to give, but there was a very, very public approval of the activity uh, of these militias uh, in February when um, 230 uh, veterans of the independence war got medals for their effort in fighting the insurgents now in Cabo Delgado. So the difference now is that the government takes on a much more dynamic role in terms of the willingness to approve and to recognize the work of these veterans contributing to the counterinsurgent effort. Yeah. There's a couple of different dynamics I can imagine as well. I mean, there's, so there's the the fact that these these militias in Cabo Delgado are often veterans of the independence war means that they they've already fought on the side of Frelimo and are, I suppose, seen as a traditionally pro-Frelimo demographic in Mozambique. So that's easier for for the government for the Frelimo government to to trust them, I suppose. Whereas in in Zambezia. At least nowadays, it's quite a strongly opposition-leaning part of the country. Um, was that also the case then? I mean, I, I guess it's Frimo has always been a southern-based uh, movement with its with with Makondi allies in the north, right? Simplistically speaking. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think the the situation now is also a little bit different with uh, these militias mostly being made up of um, veterans of the independence war, and so kind of the the loyalty of these militias doesn't necessarily need to be questioned at this point. So it's easier to trust them. And that's that's very important, right? If you outsource violence on the part of the government, if a government decides to outsource violence, counterinsurgent violence, then of course it's, a, it's important for uh, for it to be able to trust that armed group that you that you outsource violence to. And in the case of the veterans in Cabo Delgado, that's um, of course much easier than in the case of the civil war where the government was asked to outsource violence, to outsource security and protection to a group that was largely unknown to them, right? They didn't necessarily know where the leader came for, from, what his political ambitions were, uh, what, uh, yeah, whether that would evolve kind of in, in, into an additional insurgent group. So, so in that sense, um, they were much more suspicious at the time and what really then convinced them was um, the effectiveness, just the, just the fact that these groups were important and uh, effective in bringing about protection outcomes for civilians. Yeah, perhaps one way of contesting that idea that they can be necessarily be trusted is that this insurgency, as far as we understand its local roots, is because people in Cabo Delgado are unhappy with the way in which the the benefits or the riches of Mozambique's slow and patchy economic development have not been, have not been shared. So even, even those who fought in the liberation war on the side of Frelimo might by now be disgruntled. And I would have thought that it's, it's probably... There's room for the, the insurgents to try a hearts and minds strategy, although I don't think we've seen much uh, evidence of that that yet. Yes, I think I think that's right. And you also see that it's not only the veterans now that are part of these militias, right? It's only the it's, it's also their sons and family family members. So so we don't know what their political ambitions are. And I think these concerns have been raised in this debate about what's actually the legal status of these. Uh, militias and the government so far has been, yeah, trying to 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 defend the work of these uh, militias. I'm yeah, I'm kind of curious to see how long they will do that. And um, although they have said now that there need to be some some legal regulations, and they are of course aware of the fact that you can't just arm people and let them do their thing and not have any kind of legal legal framework um, for for their activities. 
Sure. And the other interesting aspect was the, is the personality of Manuel Antonio and, and the concerns that he may have personal ambitions. Do you know of any famous or charismatic militia member or leader up in Capital Gardo? I can't think of having heard any name being bandied about, but that, that's something no, you could imagine no. could emerge. Yes, that's something that could emerge, but I haven't know what, who's frequently in the news is the, is the head of the Veterans Association, but, uh, but he, I, I don't think he's even in Cabo Delgado. So in that sense, um, not yet, but I think we also have very little information as of now, yeah, who these militias actually are and what they do on a daily basis. Um, and so, yeah, we need more research to do to find out more. Yeah, absolutely. And Cabo Delgado isn't the only story in Mozambique still, and the the uh, clearing up of the last civil war is still going on um, with the DDR process for Renamo veterans. I wondered if um, there's any hope that um, Naparama veterans are in, being included in that uh, process at all, or, or if they feel they ought to be, or, or what's the situation with that? Yeah, that's it's kind of a sad story because they were completely forgotten after the civil war in the yeah in the in the post conflict process they were not included in the demobil demobilization process they didn't receive any demobilization benefits and they were very upset about it um, they kind of claimed we also contributed to the war effort and we should have been paid or we should have gotten a pension and um, they remobilized a few years after the war and together with other militia members they were not only this type of community militia like the naparama during the civil war they were also state organized militias that participated in counterinsurgency during the civil war. And they also were not involved in the demobilization effort. And at some point they had a prominent sp a spokesperson who mobilized and uh, for them in Maputo and tried to get them demobilization benefits. And the Naparama basically jumped on the bandwagon and tried to get those benefits as well. But um, a few years into the effort, this uh, spokesperson died. And with that also the effort to yeah, or the hope to get any demobilization package for those kind of combatants that supported the regular armed forces during the civil war. And um, so also in those latest discussions, I don't think the Naparama have any strong position to claim benefits. Um, also, because it's not really clear how many there were, they try to create lists of former members um, but uh, at the time, but it's not really clear how many there were, who was involved. And, um, and the, the government has a very easy uh, way to say, no, we will, we will not include them in any agreement, further agreements, demobilization agreements. Yeah, it does all support this view that <laughs> the only way of getting anything out of the Mozambican government is to provide a credible violent threat to it. Then you might get a, a multi-million dollar demobilization package, but... Not if you're fighting on their side. Yeah. Right. It's been great talking to you, Corinna, and that's a fascinating, uh, really fascinating topic. Your book is Violent Resistance, Militia Formation and Civil War in Mozambique. And I look forward to reading it, and I recommend it to our listeners as well uh, on spec. Thank you ever so much for coming on to the Zitma podcast. Thank you. And finally, editor Tom Bowker spoke with Joe Hanlon, an experienced journalist who has been covering Mozambique for decades. He's been reporting on and monitoring Mozambique's elections ever since the first ones in 1994, in partnership with the Centre for Public Integrity, and is now starting to prepare for the next electoral cycle, which will kick off with local elections next year. But democracy in Mozambique is arguably at its lowest ebb since the democratic era began. So Joe... I'm going to ask you how you see the, um, the upcoming electoral cycle, I guess, in the context of, of previous ones. What is the current state of Mozambican democracy? Well, thank you for inviting me to do this, Tom. Um, I think what is interesting about Mozambican democracy or Mozambique elections is that the level of control and corruption has gone up every year. And the... If you go back to the very first elections, there was a really high turnout 
people really work very hard to just simply make them run well. And I think the re results of that election were an accurate representation of what people were doing. And in the five elections after that, Frilimo increasingly tried to manipulate the results. So what we see is quite a long history now of all sorts of different things. I mean, in the previous, the last elections, we had huge increase in the number of voters in Gaza, so that Gaza was the only province in, in Mozambique that had no children because the entire population was voting age adults. And you have at local level all sorts of ballot box stuffing and so on. Now, the issue is of the politicization of the electoral process. This, in turn, had always been promoted by Renamu under Jakama because he believed that the more of his people he had in the process, the, the easier he could control it. But it went just the opposite. Frilimo was able to do more and more things because the Renamu people were marginalized and just settled back and took their, took their, their salaries. The other thing, though, which has changed is that in previous elections, the international community was very conscious of the, the fraud in the elections and was concerned that elections should be more honest. In, after the last elections, they weren't. So we had a highly critical report from the European Union observers, for example. When the European observers came back last month, they said none of the changes that they proposed had been introduced. None, there'd been no response to their report. And the EU said nothing. So the international community now doesn't care. They are happy to work with Frelimo. They are happy to return to the one-party state because of the gas. And so I think that will shape the next set of elections. Yeah, they're in a bit of an awkward position, aren't they, the EU, because they are giving a lot of support for Mozambique at the moment, while, yeah, like you say, being being the, the body which I guess was most harsh and most straightforward about how bad the last elections were. But you have to remember back to before when the that team first arrived for those elections, the then representative of the EU told them not to be harsh. And so they actually, very unusually, went off-piste and were extremely harsh. And that wasn't what the EU wanted. I mean, you have to remember the EU is one of the two major funders that did not take part in the donor strike over the secret debt. The EU and the World Bank carefully stood aside from that. And so they've continued to support Frelimo through this whole process because Frelimo is doing the things that they want with economics and because of the gas. And so we've got elections start next year, local elections, and then we've got um, national elections the year after. Um, and when we were speaking a couple of days ago, Joe, you were saying more important one perhaps for people to watch is going to be the local one, although that tends to grab fewer headlines. Next year, we'll have local elections in the municipalities. Now, at the moment, there are 53 municipalities with elected mayors and elected assemblies, and they cover about a third of the national population. Now, they are likely to be much more interesting than the national elections the following year because the opposition parties the MDM and Renamu are very weak now because both of their presidents have died and they've replaced the dead presidents with very weak people who have not been organizing. And their young people are still basically not interested in the electoral process. So they have not organized politically at all. So we're not going to see in national elections much of an opposition 
what happens is that in local elections, there will be an opposition because Renamo controls one in the last election, six municipalities and MDM won one. And they have local support bases. So there will be a contest in the local elections. And what we are looking to see then is what the response of the government is and what the response of the electorate is. Because I think young people in particular will be totally bored with national politics. But local politics could be quite interesting. This is about things that they pay attention to the rubbish, the streets, the football pitches, that sort of thing. And so we might get some interest and some action because Renamo and MDM still have local bases. Now, that then, what is the response of Frilimo? Can Frilimo say, okay, we don't mind that a few cities are still controlled by the opposition? Or are they going to say, well, look, these are some of the biggest cities, Bera, Nerkala, Nampula, Kelimon. These are the big cities in the north and center, and they're controlled by the opposition. And we can't allow that to happen. Because that potentially gives a platform for the opposition parties to then build on, and potentially gives a higher profile to people who could emerge as credible opposition leaders in the future. Yes, I mean, in many, many countries, local politics are the base for national politics. And so having mayors, having assemblies, showing that you can govern is really important for national elections. So the question is, how does Frelimo respond? Now, what Frelimo did in the last national elections is the instruction went down to the base we must win in every district, and we don't care how you do it. And Frilimo did win in every district, which is absolutely impossible. Now, will Frilimo this time say, we must win in every municipality, and that they will put in real efforts in places like Morameo and Kelimon and so on to try to make sure that the vote turns out in favor of Frelimo? Or will they simply let it continue because they know they'll win the national elections because the opposition is so weak? And we don't know how that's going to go. Hmm. And in terms of the attitude of international partners or the West, um, the world of liberal democracies, do you think they are... Um, democracy is a lower priority now behind peace, stability, uh, poverty reduction, prosperity. You, you know, democracy is going to take a back seat, and if it's it's a luxury that Mozambique kind of can't afford at the moment. Is that is that the view? No, I think it's the opposite way around. I think democracy and governance are luxuries that the international community can't afford. In Mozambique, they want to deal with Frelimo. They've made their deals with Frelimo. And so they don't want a change in government. And so I think they think that the luxury is on their side, and this is not what they're interested in. The other thing, of course, is that the international community itself has changed very much in terms of aid targeting. So a lot of the aid going to Mozambique now is humanitarian aid, and then it has the standard package of gender and um, HIV is still important. And some of these other very specific projects are much more important. And governance and democracy have simply fa- fallen off all of their lists. It's not a priority anymore. Yeah, which I think is unsustainable. I mean, I think that's um, without political accountability, which only comes with democracy. Mozambique will unfortunately continue to be poorly governed and development won't be inclusive and the country won't move forward and there won't be sustainable peace. That's an interesting question. I mean, we're in an era in which we are moving back into strongman politics and globally. And I think that neoliberal economy, which is also global, 
um, which is pursuing inequality, pursuing shift of, of wealth from the poor to the, to the rich, as we're seeing in Mozambique, this is the norm now. And so democracy isn't particularly interesting because strong governments will pursue neoliberal policies you know, we'll make sure that the the rubies and the graphite and the and the gas all goes to Western companies and everybody's happy with that. And I think there is a, a global restructuring in which democracy is is much on a much lower level. And I and I, I suppose one possible outcome now is that, um, as you say, strongman politics and that Mozambique has even less democracy than ever. And uh, if, if as Nusi seems to want, he gets a third term, um, which seems to be possible. And that would be the first time since the start of the democratic era that a president has overstayed the constitutionally mandated two terms uh, since Joaquin Shisano, who did take himself three terms um, and then walked off with the Mo Ibrahim Prize, which I always find quite ironic. But yeah, Nusi now is said to want three terms. Gabuza also wanted three terms, didn't get it. But what do you think of the chances that Nusi manages it this time? Well, and don't forget, Chisano wanted another term and didn't get it. So Frelimo has a historic opposition to people having more than two terms. And that's partly because of the need to share the spoils. They don't want one president to continue eating for more than two terms. And they want somebody else who would have a, a, a separate um, patronage system who would, you know, spread, spread the wealth a little bit more uh, among the elite. So I think that Frelimo is not sympathetic to a third term. Also, it does require a constitutional amendment. And I'm not sure that Filimo will go along with this. Um, so partly then, the problem for Nusi is that he has to find the next president who won't do to him what he's been doing to Gabuza. So he really does need somebody he trusts and who will be loyal as the next president. And that's always dangerous because as he's showing, you, you, you never know quite what the next president is going to do to you. So what you're seeing now, for example, is everybody trying to make deals, everybody trying to get mining licenses, everybody trying to get contracts, everybody trying to get their not I don't mean everybody. I mean everybody in the small Frulimo elite, making sure that they're secure when Nusi isn't there. And that bargaining is what's going on now, going up to the Congress. Nusi promising deals to also to everybody. And do they believe him or not? Or will they change sides? And it's interesting that a number of key people in the government now had been Gabuza people who simply changed sides to Nusi. And that could happen again. So the jockeying for position going up to the choice of the presidential candidate next year will go on. And that pretty much dominates what's happening in Mozambique. It's one of the reasons that there isn't any forward movement on Cabo Delgado development and so on, is that it's Everybody at the top of Frelimo is occupied with jockeying for position going into the Congress. And what did you pick up from your discussions in Maputo about who, who the next president might be? What I picked up is that no one knows even Nusi and that the choice has not been made. And I think that it, there is still a lot about loyalties and so on. There is still the question of will it need to be someone from the center? There has never been a president from the center. People in the center of the country say it's their turn. There are a number of candidates that could come from there. Um, so that's 
And I think that discussion is still going on. And I think Nusi in particular is still playing games with all of his, I mean, this is Game of Thrones. You know, who is in favor now, who is not in favor now. And, you know, we don't know, we won't know who's in favor until we get in two years to the choice of the president, presidential candidate. And so there's a lot of jockeying to go on in the next two years. Sorry, next year, because the president will get chosen in, we'll, we'll get, probably. Anyway, next year or two. Yeah, should be tw- should be in 2023. Yeah, if not later this year. I was told yesterday also there's a central committee meeting ahead of Congress. So that's also going to be an important meeting. Nobody, you won't get a presidential candidate until after the new political commission is elected. Um, the question then will be, does Nusi control the political commission and the central committee? And therefore, can he put forward a candidate? And what was interesting with the nomination of Nusi was that Gabuza did not control the nomination. And so Nusi was not Gabuza's candidate. So Frilimo is very divided always and, you know, is not, I mean, trying to be head of Frilimo is a bit like herding cats. It's, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. And we've just seen actually that Nusi again failed to get Celso Correa appointed as prime minister in the, in the reshuffle about a month ago. So yeah, however powerful he is, it's not, he's not all powerful. Also, I mean, you know, Celso Correa is in an interesting position because he's one of the people who changed sides from Gabuza to Nusi. Is Nusi afraid he would change sides again to support the replacement? Or would he continue to be loyal? Who knows? Yeah, much still to be seen and to become clear over the next couple of years. But maybe we'll leave it there for now. Thanks, Joe, uh, Joe Hanlon, and I look forward to having you on the Zetamar podcast again in the coming weeks. Thank you for listening to the Zetamar podcast. Sign up to our newsletter at zetamarnews.substack.com or through our main website, zetamar.com, to receive the podcast by email. And make sure to share, review, and subscribe to the Zetamar podcast on your preferred podcast provider. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>